Ethan and Benjamin Castle are Americans. Watching the footy. Liam Ryan saying kick it my way. I want to jump over the pack and here he comes. Oh, Ryan! This is Buddy Franklin! This is the greatest showman! Got the handball off to Myers. Myers looking for the lead of Stengel. Gee, they're good. Gee, they're sharp. Randall Dazzle Rioli. Oh, who else? McDonald. Tibble. From inside the centre square. Welcome to episode 107 of Americans Watching the Footy, the only podcast prepped in the Kansas City airport during a layover, and the only footy podcast by two Jews that stole this intro format from a baseball podcast by two Jews. I'm Ethan Castle, coming to you from South San Francisco, California. I'm Benjamin Castle, coming to you from South San Francisco, California. Ethan's the one who had the layover. He's back from his first East Coast swing. Yeah, I'm... I'm going to have to really learn how to do the whole East Coast footy stuff. It's it's a challenge. Because you're not used to it, yeah. I mean, it would be a challenge even if I was, because unlike when I'm at home sometimes, I'm, like, doing things every day. That's what makes it tough, is I don't, I can't really structure my sleep schedule around it anywhere near as much. Yeah, you're, you know, being a tourist and also going to baseball games. Yeah, so it's... It's a challenge. And also seeing family as well. In this case, yes. Anyway, it's it's a challenge, but it's fun. It was a solid week. Uh, round 13, you had only one really tight finish, but a couple of interesting games, a couple of statement games, a couple of games where some finalists and flag contenders kind of had some flaws exposed that need to be discussed, and we're going to get all into that. But we do have some news to get into. First up, do we want to go with, yeah, I guess, let's let's start with Marlon Pickett. I mean, sure, I was going to say that until when we were breaking down the Richmond and Frio game, but he, uh, I think it's pressing matter. Um, yeah, he was arrested on multiple charges, including aggravated burglary, totaling, I think it was around $350,000. I've heard anything dollars. between three hundred fifty and 400000 Yeah, um, with criminal damage involved as well. I believe his brother-in-law has pled. Guilty, but the evidence against Marlon himself is more circumstantial. Reading up a bit about this, it's more about his phone was pinged in the area. He was he had been buying clothes in the area, so I think it's going to be tougher for him to get pinged from this. But given the criminal history and that you know it was various burglaries that got him in trouble in the first place, you get why the subject is being approached the way it is by media and fans alike. He is out on bail. He is in Victoria. He's training. Sounds like he's not playing this week, but the club's planning on having him play after the bye. Seems weird with this criminal matter that it's going to work that way. Just a couple weeks ago, after he had the winning goal against GWS, I was thinking how great it is that he's gotten his shit together and been making better decisions, and it seems like he hasn't been. And if he was involved with this to any extent, I'd imagine that's the end of his career. Yeah, it's like, this isn't, you know, you have a couple drinks and someone says some stupid shit and you get in a bar fight. This is, 
you know, premeditated stuff that like like you have time instead of just reacting to say, wait a minute, no, I shouldn't be doing this. And my other question is, why did the arrests only occur after the game? Well, this is a matter that had happened in December and January. I think it had something to do with the authorities in Western Australia. Like they had scheduled a meeting with him, I think was how it worked. I also wanted to talk about one other thing that even though it happened, we've done a couple episodes since. It's really been making the rounds since then. And I wanted to bring it up because even though it's not so much a footy thing, it's pretty relevant in the world of sports. It's, you know, Livy rizzed up baby Gronk. I have baby Gronk as a term muted on my Twitter timeline. Realistically, the kid's dad is setting him up to fail. Oh, I, he's I, going to be in prison at some point in the next 10 to 15 years. Honestly, <laughs> I'm not sure about prison. The kid will quit football during high school. But I do think he does have to be acknowledged as the current Riz King. I guess so, yeah. I mean, I, I'm not a fan of the term. I wish Livy Dunn were better than that. I, I, I am so over all the stories around this kid. And just, I like that most of the things that are coming out from the conversation about him are... His dad is fishing for any inroad he can get. And it makes him look absolutely pathetic, like following up multiple times, like with a lot of people. I remember, I think Taylor Lewan from the Titans has called him out a bunch. I mean, Taylor Lewan's a douche, but that's another story. Um, the guy's dad had gone out of the way to message the dude who runs this Hoopify channel, who I think is hysterical. This is like some of the best satire I've ever seen. This guy is actually a college lacrosse player. He's a defender at UMass Lowell. Go Riverhawks. And yeah, I'm a fan now because this guy does satire and parody really well. The obnoxious sound effects, the never blinking, staring at the camera, all of it. He's he's awesome. And yeah, he's got a... Ooh, I think... Do we have a part three to this? Yeah. Oh, gosh. He, just, he released another short, so... He's, he's got a couple other shorts. This, uh, also, siblings are dating, where like people look at photos and have to tell if people are siblings are dating. Uh, I yeah, I, I, I've seen that. I'm just so fucking over Baby Gronk. Oh, no, I am too, but the meme is phenomenal. And the sequel was the, was the better one because of all the wow sound effects. That, that really did it for me. I don't think we're going to go as overboard with sound effects, unless you really want me to, Ethan. Yeah, um, when you go back and edit this, like, talking about this segment, just throwing, like, the anime, wow, like... Every few seconds, just randomly. Okay, uh, actual footy discussion here? Yeah, complete pivot. Sydney 9-12-66, defeated by St. Kilda 12-8-80. I mean, this, it looked like an American football score at first. It was 7 nothing after a quarter, and 35-26 at halftime. I mean, that just, that's Big 12 stuff. The Big 12 isn't like that anymore, though. Uh, Baylor, West Virginia can still do that. <laughs> Not as much, but well, we'll see what happens with Cincinnati coming in. But I had said, like, if the first quarter of that game was the first quarter of footy I had ever watched, there would not have been a second quarter. Really? It was fucking terrible. Uh, I mean, I was able to gather that St. Kilda had control early on because of their strong pressure. The Methuswads were forced to play more slowly. It was just, it was a very typical Ross Lyons start. It was Sydney's second scoreless quarter at the SEG and their first scoreless quarter against the Saints in exactly 120 years. Seven points made it the lowest scoring first quarter overall since 1999, disregarding 2020. Some of the worst field kicking I've ever seen from the Swans. Like multiple times you would have a centering kick and a couple of guys open and instead of just kicked it like straight to a Saints player. It was like if someone had like the magnet power up from some of the backyard sports games employed. When the Swans actually did score, I noted 
Errol Golden was a big part of starting passages, just clean pickups, good long kicks. It was the stuff that you that you would expect from him. And the Swans did take control in the second quarter. I thought, you know, they'd had that that rocky start. I thought they'd settled in, but kicked 2-5 in the third. Weren't sticking marks in the defensive 50. And, you know, as much as they were doing in terms of pressure with Brayton Campbell being the most visible he'd been for the whole year, it didn't seem like a game where either team was able to hold on to control for long. That third quarter was really where the Swans could have done some damage, and they were the superior team for most of that quarter and weren't able to take advantage of it. You know, they had a 12-point lead but gave up a goal in the final seconds of the third quarter to Dan Butler. That was huge. Speaking of Butler, before that, he had put on a seemingly dangerous tackle on Nick Blakey. Upon review, realized, no, wait, that was just pretty normal tackle. Blakey was just caught unaware, and his head ended up hitting the turf. And uh, tribunal result is in. He got off. Correctly. It was just the general reaction is like, if this is a bad tackle now, like you're going to have like 10 suspensions a week. How funny would it be if someone ends up winning the Brownlow with, like, nine votes? It would be pretty funny. I mean, like, as of now, you know, Zach Merritt's going to be pretty high up there, and none of his are going to count. Let's just hope Butters and Bottom Pelly don't get suspended. It would be really funny, though, if, like, both of them and Dacos and like watch Neil and, like... Watch Seven have to extend the leaderboard beyond, like, the top five to show who's actually leading among eligible players. There are a lot of really funny potential outcomes here. I don't think John Segler winning the Brownlow is one of them. Mason Cox, though, he's got to have votes, yeah. Join the foreign-born Brownlow club with Jim Steins. Or Brian. That would also totally work. I'd totally not be opposed to that. I'd endorse that. Heck, Brian the Cat is probably in the running to win the Brownlow at this point. Anyway, the whole thing about Blakey, I mean, probably didn't help that he wasn't able to close out the game with the run that he always provides. The third quarter was their chance to pull away, and they didn't do it. Ended up actually being a pretty entertaining fourth quarter. With some questionable umpiring to give the Saints the lead in the first place. This was a few minutes into the fourth that, after Mitch Owens marked on the edge of the 50, Errol Golden was penalized really quickly for not giving enough space on the mark. I don't think he got really any time to back up. And even though the Saints did surrender the lead for a brief moment, they never trailed again. Yeah, they went up 60-52. to 52. Swans tied it at 60 on a Braden Campbell goal with 10-20 left. And then the Saints took the lead for good on a behind from Brad Hill a little over a minute later. Jack Higgins got a big goal after that. I mean, any goal at that stage of a close game is big. That kind of goes without saying. Yeah, Max King helped create that goal. Solid game from King. You knew it was going to happen once he nailed his first shot, but on the broadcast, they mentioned multiple times how both the King twins are really clean, you know, picking up the ball, doing stuff, you know, below their knees. And we saw that in this game because King had that assist to, to Higgins. And that was really clean. There was a streaker after that. Yeah, yeah. Well, that was one of the more interesting things that happened. This I week. mean, he didn't completely disrobe. That's not really a streaker. Yeah, more just more just dumbass on the field. There's a difference between, you know, a, a streaker has to be naked. Yeah. Or like at least down to underwear. Yeah, he made it back into the stands. Security did end up getting him a little after that, though. I was disappointed that, like, nobody in the stands tried to trip him. Yeah, I mean, didn't you see what was, like, a citizen's arrest uh, at Optus Stadium last year in a Frio game? After somebody made it back to the stands after invading? After the streaker, 
Saints kept on the pressure, got a couple more goals, and were just able to convincingly close it out. It was their first win in their last eight meetings with the Swans at the SCG, going back to round 18 of 09. It was a great video with uh, Seb Ross and Matthias Filippo post-game. Um, so he was asking, Seb, when did you make your debut? 2012. When did you get your first win at the SCG? 2023. Matthias, when did you make your debut? <laughs> That's good. That's really good. <laughs> That's a Swan's fourth home loss of the season. Yeah, and the SCG is not a place where that's supposed to happen. I mean, obviously, a lot of contributing factors between injuries and just not playing well. I didn't think the Saints played a terrific game. They played the better game, and even though I you know, was very critical of how the stand rule was applied at times, the constant pressure and Sydney not having good hands in their defensive 50 made that result in and of itself. I would give the Saints two or three points for winning this game. I don't think they deserved all four. Would you give the Swans any? Fuck no. Neither would I. Again, I'd, I'd give credit to Golden and Campbell and to Buddy Franklin for kicking his 1,058th goal to put him in fourth all-time, passing Doug Wade. That is where he will end up on the list at fourth. He's uh, a little ways off chief. Brad Crouch led the Saints with 33 disposals. He had eight tackles. Jackson Clare, 32 disposals, 7 clearances, and 607 meters. Pretty typical game from him. Nazia Wanganin Miller are cracking 30 disposals, along with 9 marks and a goal. Again, his ability to consistently get touches at halfback has helped free up Sinclair to be more of that forward mover, getting more time in the center and half forward groups. Captain Jack Steele, though not playing at 100%, had 24 disposals and 7 tackles. Cal Wilkie did a good job on Buddy overall, 23, 10 intercepts, and 8 marks. Mitch Owens was super fun to watch again, and you can tell how much the Saints had missed him two weeks prior because he was a positive contributor over the full round, scoring, pressuring, couple key intercepts. He kicked 2-2 from 21, had 12 contested possessions, 8 marks, and gained 490 meters. And uh, Rowan Marshall cracked 50 hitouts along with 16 disposals and 7 tackles as well for a Ruckman. Not too shabby. I don't think Gazy would say that's pretty standard stuff. Probably not. Hitouts as a whole were plus 25 to the Saints, and tackles plus 39, but Swans won clearances by by 10 and by 12 from stoppage, so they should have given themselves a lot more chances based on their stoppage success. But inside 50s where they let themselves down, really in both 50s with poor hands defensively and inside the off and inside the forward 50, only 31.5% disposal efficiency. Yeah, that's exceptionally bad. Saints, 47.1, decent, not incredible. Some notable stats for individual Swans players. Ollie Florent, 34 disposals, 676 meters. James Rowbottom, 24 disposals, 17 contested possessions. Only four tackles, though. That's very low for him. Chad Warner, 24 disposals, 7 tackles, 509 meters gained. Braden Campbell, a goal of behind, 23 disposals, 581 meters. Justin McInerney, a behind, and 23 disposals. Yeah, again, probably Campbell's most positive game of the season, but you look back at that clearance stat, looking at what happened after those clearances that the Swans won pretty handily. Second half, Saints were plus 15 in post-clearance contested possessions. So winning possessions in more open passages of play, in more open parts of the oval. Checks out with the vision. The Swans are down at 5-7. and seven. They've got to go to the Gabba next. Then they have a free win against the Eagles. Then they host Geelong. They could be 7-8 and eight 
heading into the round 17 opener against Richmond. That's a very juicy round opener for very different reasons than we would have expected coming into the season. The Swans have a lot of weeknight footy coming up. You know, this was a Thursday. They go Friday this coming round, then a Saturday, then another Friday. Then a Thursday. Then a Thursday, then another Thursday. And then finally back to Saturday. And I think from there... Yeah, I mean, no Thursdays after round 18, of course, but... Yeah, they don't have any remaining, like, Friday night game after that. But there's going to be a lot of early round Swans games. I mean, everyone's undivided attention. I mean, the hope is, you know, as they continue to get healthier, this was Dane Rampey's first game back. I'm glad that he was playing alongside Lewis Melkin in defense. I'm just surprised they weren't cleaner. Um, Obviously, the hope is, you know, as they get healthier, their form will rise to more respectable levels. And I mean... They've been playing a bit of respectable footy before that. Western Bulldogs, 13-7-85, defeated by Port Adelaide, 16-11-107. You knew Port were going to punish the Bulldogs in the quarter throughout this game. They were number one in quarter use entering the round. The Bulldogs were 18th, and you look at where the game was won, yeah. Port did what we expected them to do. That said, all of a sudden... I think it's fair to be concerned about the Bulldogs' defense. Yeah, Liam Jones was hardly involved again. He was below average in a lot of main statistical categories, was a non-factor. Caleb Daniel, who, I mean, admittedly has been playing more forward, was flat-footed in some key contests, and Josh Bruce is not a defender, and Charlie Dixon was his dad early on. Some of the, you know, moving Daniel forward and Bruce back, I didn't mind moving Daniel forward. I still don't mind that. I mean, he's a good forward, but it's, I, I think I think the issue is without Ed Richards there that, that you need more solid support. And, I mean, they've got a number of pieces there between Vandermeer, DeRay. I mean, Vandermeer was more visible in some okay ways in this one, and he's a pretty versatile player himself. The tall defenders as a whole for the dog struggled, and I think I've identified why. So, they have Liam Jones playing really far back by the goal square. And I think in the last couple of weeks, teams have decided, yeah, just just play a bit further further up in the D fifty in the forward fifty. It's like, look, if you target there, yeah, if you mark it, you almost certainly have a goal, unless it's like, you know, Jesse Hogan who only makes difficult shots and stuffs the easy ones. Harry Mackay as well. Now, nah, well, Harry Mackay doesn't necessarily make the difficult shots, but. Todd Marshall wasn't targeted nearly as much in this game because Liam Jones was playing on him so deep. Basically, teams are settling for slightly, you know, a bit lower percentage shots by not trying to go as deep. But the trade-off there is that you're probably going to mark those and you're going to get more attempts and that ends up being the better decision. After the disappointment of Thursday night footy, hell of a first quarter. 10 goals, and the Bulldogs left a number of opportunities on the field as well, kicking 4-5 to Port 6-1. It's not like that was the theme for the rest of the game. From from there on, Port were just pretty convincingly better throughout, but that was a fun first quarter. Like I've said, it doesn't have to be high scoring to be good, but I enjoyed that first quarter not because there was so much scoring, but because there was just nonstop action back and forth. The ball was never getting stuck in one area. The Bulldogs did assert their clearance strength early on. They were plus 14 for the game and plus 14 from stoppage as well. But Port didn't need to win this game from stoppage. They won it from creating scores from the defensive half. They kicked 
they scored 43 points, seven goals one, going from the defensive half to Ports 4-3-27. And that's where the corner use came in, came in handy for the power again against a team that doesn't do that all that often and as a result has a tougher time defending against it. Also when, you know, they they bring, you know, they tend to swell pretty far up the ground, you know, once they're once one of their key midfielders has the ball, they expect them to be able to do the job to hit that next target and what were making that difficult. Willem Drew with another strong pressure game had a couple of key plays in this one thinking about that smother that he had on on Baltimore in the middle of the fourth quarter to set up what eventually became a really impactful Jason Horn Francis goal to put the margin out to 14. Was that the Sharpie moment for you? Like, a Port aren't going to lose after that big moment? No, not fully. But it, it was clear after that, like, it was a goal that was worth more than the six points on the scoreboard. Amazing three-person sequence. Like, there needs to be, we'll mention this later as well, there needs to be, like, a category for team goal of the year. Mark and Goldie are very much, you know, individual awards, obviously, for the marker or the goal kicker. But Drew and Butters got this ball from the defensive 50 forward. Butters outworking Tom Liberatore in the process. And then Horn Francis followed up from Liam Jones knocking the ball away from the contest, straightened up and, and kicked from the middle of the 50. And huge celebration, huge reaction, seven cuts to the wrong camera at the loading dock. That was funny. That was a great innocent mistake. There was also oh, what was that? I forget which game it was in where you know we had a shot blocked by a fan walking through the aisle or something. Well, it's it, well. Are we thinking like the SCG vision? This with- was not at the SCG. This was definitely a game in Melbourne. I forget which one, <laughs> but it was. You know, that was such a huge swing momentum wise. Port had been up by twenty two. Have you talked about this sequence at all? No. Dogs cut it down to eight. Really had some momentum going. You thought, all right, they've actually made some in-game adjustments. They were handballing much more instead of kicking. Making things happen off clearances, largely thanks to Bon and Pelly. And then, yeah, this this was the play that just, it was not just great team football. It was, you know, it totally shifted momentum back. And yeah, yeah Bon and Pelly was making things happen off clearances, but... Port had been struggling to, but the dogs didn't make the most of all the chances that Bottom Pelly and others gave them. As of the half, I believe they were the number sixteen team in terms of scoring from clearance for the season, and they were second last year. So that's a big, that's a massive drop on that. Clearly needs to be addressed. Then you had one of the more interesting of umpiring decisions. I think it was correct. It's just one you don't see very often, where. Cody Waitman would have had a goal, but Cody Waitman would have had a goal to cut it back within two goals. But Oscar Baker got called for shepherding Ollie Wines on the line, which is just funny because normally you can get away with literally anything on the goal line. Look at what Buddy did. That's exactly what I was thinking of. Like, not just because it was against Port, because that was right at the end. I mean, Buddy basically shoved Miles Bergman to the ground and had Florida kick that goal. It would have stood. Yeah, there's no way that would have gotten called. Not against Bud. Not in Sydney. I don't think it would have gotten called against pretty much anybody. It would have been amazing to have, you know, the call take away the after the siren goal correctly, might I add. But, yeah, I, I would like to see that be, like, a point of emphasis. You know, 
just monitoring what happens in contests around the goal line more. So I had no issue with it, but it was a big momentum shift. And Sam Powell Pepper kicked the next two goals. I mean, I guess it was that first goal by Powell Pepper to bring it back out to 20 with under five left. That that was really the Sharpie. You know, it had already felt like the game was mostly dealt with, and then that that really sealed it. I mean, the only negative that you can take away from this game for Port is that Lockie Jones fractured his jaw in the fourth quarter. Is that Lockie Jones fractured his jaw in the fourth quarter, and he's out four weeks from that. This has been one of his more complete games. Yeah, I really liked his effort. 19 disposals, 13 contested possessions, 11 intercepts. He was just very noticeable in key moments, and not just because of his awesome appearance. There were a lot of the usual suspects for the dogs in the midfield. We'll run through their stats in a sec, but once again, you know, it's a lack of depth contributors, and right now it's defensively. Like, they're going to have to find a way to make sure Liam Jones is inserted into things more, where, like, you can't just play keep away and have success. Like, for example, Tom Stewart. You can't just keep it away from him. One way or another, Tom Stewart is going to get involved in just about every game. And Liam Jones is a hell of an intercept defender. I mean, you had, frankly, neither intercept, neither of the big intercept defenders in this game did a ton between him and Allier. But you got to find a way to get him involved to the point where teams can't just make one simple adjustment and avoid him for the whole game. But the depth issues also didn't stop once he left the defensive 50 for the dogs. Some of their younger midfielders were hardly visible. James O'Donnell probably needs to be dropped again. Artie Jones didn't touch the ball once. Which sucks, because you know, we love the kid, but he's he's struggled for a couple weeks. I think his overall career trajectory is great. I just don't know if he's going to be a major impact within this season. No surprise, as has been the case throughout this entire club record 10-game winning streak, Zach Butters was really solid. 31 disposals, 11 score involvements, 531 meters gained in a goal. Travis Boak was probably the number two contributor in his return. 26 disposals, 15 contested possessions. Dogs midfielders did a good job on Ollie Wines, but Connor Rosie still ended up kicking 1-1 off 23 disposals. He had seven tackles. Kane Farrell was kind of the guy starting play out of the back. He had 17 disposals and 696 meters gained for the game, and all 17 of those disposals were kicks. And Scott Lysette actually did a pretty decent job on Tim English. Oh, he won that matchup. Lysette simply won the matchup. Only 11 disposals, but 43 hitouts. Hitouts were plus 23 to Port's advantage, 50 to 27. I had been hoping English would be able to get more involved in defense, maybe spell Liam Jones a bit. Well, and English and still was involved around the ground, but... Yeah, yeah, he was, but he needed to be more so in order to make up for the difficulty he was having against Lysette. Have English maybe take some of those deeper assignments at times, and Liam Jones could be... Liam Jones could spend more time at center half back. I mean, there needs to be something more that's more permanent than, you know, having Tim English support you in defense. I think Alex Keith I think Alex Keith would need to be one of the key figures to step up there. So yeah, very impressed by Scott Lysette's performance in this game. Yeah, I remember he'd been so maligned at the start of the year. I mean, last year he was also just hurt at times. Oh, he hurt at times. He missed the whole season after getting hurt against Melbourne. What was that, round four? Yeah, but he wasn't like a super impactful player. I mean, 
they also had lost every game he played in last year, so kind of self-explanatory. But yeah, this is the best game he's played at least in two years. He was subbed out round five. He was subbed out round five, wasn't back until the win against the D's in round 10, and they've been very strong since. Portwood plus six and contested marks as well, 13 to seven. The Bulldogs were plus 73 in uncontested possessions because of how much they were passing things in the back, looking for angles, switching sides, and not doing much with it. Is that just a West team thing because it was very Adam Simpson-like at moments? And they did the same thing the week before, and in that game against Geelong, you know, in the first quarter it actually kind of worked, but other than that it was just, you know, it was mostly just empty staff padding that didn't have much bearing on the game. Adam Trelor with a goal, 34 disposals, 21 contested possessions, and 8 clearances. Tom Libertori kicked no goals, 2 from 33, 19 contested, and 11 clearances. Marcus Bonapelli, a goal from 31 and 8 clearances. I think his clearances ended up being the most effective, even though Libertori got more of them. Bailey Dale, 30 disposals and 615 meters. Caleb Daniel, a goal from 29 disposals. Bailey Smith, 28 and 7 clearances. Jack McRae, a goal from 26 and 10 marks, quietly going about his business again and being the regular positive contributor that that we expect from him. And Bailey Williams with 23 disposals and 8 marks, I think at this point he has worked himself into being part of that main group. So that's three Baileys on that front for the Dogs. So Ethan, you called this uh, three-game slate that we're about to talk about Olive Garden Saturday. What restaurant did it actually end up like? It's really tough to compare. It was like, good opening, good ending, terrible in the middle. Well, the middle, I don't know if it was terrible. I mean, terrible in terms of it being competitive. I mean, it was interesting, certainly. I feel like the middle would have to be like one of those things that you try not because it's good, but because it's just really, really spicy. Like something really outlandish. It's like, it might set my anus on fire, but I have to try. It doesn't have to be spicy. It could just be, like, made with some really strange ingredient. Like, it could have been soup number five. Good reference. Anyway, Hawthorne 15-8-98, defeating Brisbane 11-7-73. Make it four wins in a row for Hawthorne against the Brisbane Lions. The Hawks are the only team Brisbane have yet to beat since the start of COVID. That's kind of amazing. That 2020 meeting must have been pretty early in the season, I would think. Oh, yeah, it was round one. Ding, ding, ding. That's why the broadcasters specified since since COVID shut things down. And let's see. 2021, I... Was that a Tasmania game, too, or... Oh, my God, he's sniffing very loudly. 2021 was also a Tasmania game. It was originally going to be played with the G. Got moved to Tasmania. Yeah, so they could actually have a crowd in uh, round 20. And then last year's game was the free kick fest. This was not. This was this was Hawthorne stringing out Brisbane on uncontested play, getting outside, handballing most of the way. Have we seen a new blueprint to beat Brisbane? Or is it just that the Lions are playing at the G? I think it's a mix. My thing with the Lions in this game, their defense really struggled. Again. Why was Kadeem Coleman dropped? He was only the sub. I, I don't get it. I, he could totally turn this around in, like, two weeks. But as of now, 
Daniel Rich looks like he's over the hill. I mean, I've been... Okay, he's making a lot of noise. I know, but he's the baby. How old's he at this point? He's like, what, 34? Schmiffney Bibdom. What a shock, a 33-year-old's over the hill. And, I mean, we knew losing Marcus Adams was going to hurt a lot. I mean, then again, Jack Payne had largely bid making up for that and then some. But in this game, Payne just looked kind of big and clunky. Yeah, Tyler Brockman took a really strong mark over him. Brandon Starcevich has not played particularly well the last couple of weeks. Darcy Gardner, I'm really not impressed with. Harris Andrews was better in this game, which didn't surprise me. I said he'd get at least, what, what did I say, like 15 to 18 disposals or something? Well, he had 16 to 12 intercepts, but... Yeah, the you, Hawks, you, you may have actually said 16. <sighs> it was something in that range. I thought he also totally could have ended up with more, but I felt like something in the high teens seemed like a safe bet. But it was the Hawks that ended up pulling away in this one after trailing by 17 early in the third. Well, 17 was also the halftime margin. I'm surprised that... The Lions ended up working out that margin off of success on stoppages, considering that's been one of Hawthorne's strengths all year, particularly with Will Day and Jai Newcomb both in the mix. It was funny because I did really like what I saw out of Day and Newcomb as usual. I know you really like Connor McDonald's game. It's the most complete game I'd seen out of him, and had he not played 20 games last year, he would have been an easy rising star pick for this week. I thought that Cam Rayner rising for a mark on the goal line and putting the margin out to 11 inside a minute left in the second quarter was going to be the main inflection point for this game. And Brisbane got a center clearance and Eric Hipwood scored on the halftime siren to put it out to 17. But after that, Hawthorne got back to work getting uncontested possessions. I noted that with five and a half minutes left in the third, they were already plus 40 uncontested. They'd been kicking a bit more at that point, but they were still moving the ball effectively. Just before that, a goal from Jacob Kaczynski had given the Hawks the lead back, and Lloyd Meek got one more before three-quarter time. It was a 10-point lead at that stage. You know, so my Friday night, I was at minor league baseball in Maryland, ended up being a long game, got back to the hotel, and it was about halftime when I got back. And it's just from looking at the score, it it seemed like, all right, Lions are going to do their thing now. They're going to pull away. You know, it was tight for a while, but eventually the better team takes over, and that's what seemed like it was going to happen here. And then instead, the game got completely turned in the other direction, and the Hawks kind of gave it to them in the second half, especially in the fourth quarter. 39-12 to in the third, and 25-10 to in the fourth. Yeah, wow, he is, uh... He's, what are you doing? He's going at himself? I don't know, but, um... The only negative that I can really think of from Hawthorne for the second half is the James Sicily slate tackle on Hugh McCluggage. McCluggage is clearly concussed from that. Sicily is currently fronting the tribunal as we're recording this, and we'll put in an update when we get news from who else but the Schnitz eater, David Zeta. I think he is the Schnitz king, just like Baby Gronk is the Riz king. Oh, God. Yeah, he, he has to be. Hawthorne scored eight of the last nine goals and ten of the last thirteen. Meanwhile, Brisbane have only won two of their last 18 games at the MCG and three of their last 26. See, that's really hard to wrap my head around because it's not like every team that plays home games at the G has been that good in that stretch. Obviously, Hawthorne's been down. Up until the last couple of years, Melbourne was down. Carlton, I mean, decent amount of their games against Carlton have been at Marvel, but 
Carlton's not good. Essendon had some rough patches in that. I, I would assume that's also more at Marvel. It's funny, the Lions have actually done pretty well at Marvel. Not as well as Port, who just, like, run that shit now. Oh, yeah, Port have won nine straight at Marvel, while no other team has won more than three in a row there. But this was more than just futility on a certain ground for the Lions. Those are catchy sort of stats, but that's not the story. They just got outplayed, and they got outrun and outpossessed, uncontested. You look at what Brisbane did against Collingwood, be able to match up against them in those contests, win those balls, and then go over the top. They weren't given many opportunities to go over the top outside of contests because as soon as Hawthorne won them, they took time and space. They went to the outside a lot, and unless you're playing Hugh McCluggage as a wing, the Lions really don't have that presence, and I think I think Sam Mitchell did a great job devising a game plan to exploit it. Like, every week, he does something that just convinces me, like, this dude's going to be a premiership coach, maybe multiple. And the problem with Brisbane, it's, you know, I've said it before, offensively, midfield, they have what it takes, even though, yes, in this game, their midfield did get exposed a bit. It's things that can be covered up with sheer talent. You don't have to be great on the wing if you're that good in the middle, but this really doesn't look like a premiership-caliber defense right now, and entering this season, that's that's what I was banking on from them. And it had been at times, but not on Saturday. When it comes to defenders, looking at Hawthorne's individual stats, James Sicily, who, again, the Tribunal's deliberating about him, led the way with 32 disposals, 12 marks, 10 intercepts, and 478 meters gained. At this point, is, is the price for a big Hawthorne win a Sicily suspension? And can they win without him? I think the answers might be yes and no, respectively. It's it's funny how, for the most part, I've actually really liked how he's handled his, you know, the leadership stuff the last few weeks. It seems like he understands, you know, when to, he, he has a really good feel for when to get on guys and when to encourage them, but he's having issues now just keeping himself on the field with, like, regular suspensions and visits to the tribunal, like, to the point that it's getting ridiculous. Brian Myers' good friend, James Warple, had 30 disposals. With all due respect to John Miller for that one. Jarman Impey with 28 and 12 marks. Has this been his best season since we've started watching? I think so. Maybe that just comes with designing one of the best jumpers we've ever seen. We talked a decent amount about Connor McDonald. Kicked two goals from 28 and 12 score involvements. Jai Newcomb with 28, 11 score involvements and gaining 477 meters. Will Day, 27 and 15 contested possessions. Connor Nash with 25 disposals. Dylan Moore also had 25 and kicked 2-2. Blake Hardwick providing good support again in defense with 22 disposals and 9 marks. You look at how Hawthorne possessed the ball, controlled it throughout the game, plus 95 in handballs, plus 97 uncontested possessions, plus 16 inside 50s. The cleaner team in terms of disposal efficiency, even though the stats inside 50 went against them, it didn't matter if the Lions were plus 20 in clearances when they weren't able to keep the ball in their hands. On the Lions' side, Lockie Neal, a behind 30 disposals, 14 marks. Josh Dunkley, the highest-ranking midfielder by fantasy points in the entire competition this week, with a goal, 28 disposals, 15 contested possessions, 11 tackles, and 8 clearances. Will Ashcroft, a goal in 20 disposals. Before he got hurt, Hugh McCluggage, 18 disposals and 8 tackles. and. I already mentioned Harris Andrews, but I'm going to say it again because I called it. 16 disposals, 12 intercepts. 
Adelaide 27-12-174, defeating West Coast Eagles 8-4-52. I'm going to use a really overused meme here. Our expectations for you were low, but holy fuck. Really? You didn't go with Taylor Walker 10-2-62, defeating West Coast 8-4-52? No, but he did kick 10. I think that's... I think he's kind of got to be the main character this week just for that, right? In his 250th, he's got to be. He kicked 10. Well, that settles that. Anyway, I watched, like, none of this game. I slept through it. It was the right decision. Not just in terms of me being able to be awake for better games and my adventures, but just this was not worth watching. A lot of 13s in this game. I think Taylor Walker ended up having 13 shots on goal for which he kicked that 10-2. Also, the West Coast Eagles scored exactly 13 points in every quarter. They kicked 2-1 each quarter, so, like, that's cool. That's some, that's some Cam Mooney numerology shit right there. He was tagged in discussions about that. Um, What was I happy about with the Eagles? Ryan Merrick made his debut and kicked two goals. He had been drafted by the Eagles 10 days prior. You knew that this was going to be a problem game for West Coast, because they had no back line. Jake Waterman was lined up at center half back. And then he was a laid out with illness. I mean, Campbell Chesser got in. Don't mind that. But Rhett Bazo stood no chance versus Tex. You had texted me Adelaide by 119. Waterman now out sick. Yeah. And instead it was Adelaide by 122. That's pretty good. Yeah, that that's a good shout. That's a good shout for me. Uh, And I said, as soon as the bounce happened, I tweeted out, there's the bounce and the crows have won. Only question is how many techs will kick today. He could get 14 and I wouldn't bat an eye. He had seven in the first half. I was on something. Seriously, like, other than techs, Ryan Merrick joining the first kick club was awesome. The Eagles were bringing the heat. They were moving the ball quickly when they got forward, but didn't happen enough. You knew they would be exposed all over the place defensively, withered in too aggressive. It ended up being Oscar Allen who was the one to move back after the first portion of the second quarter. He ended up limiting Walker much more. I mean, I I hate seeing Allen have to be the one to do that because it's Oscar Allen. He did still keep his goal-kicking streak alive. But if you didn't expect this sort of result, why not? I mean, I think to ever expect a team to win by, like, 80-plus is kind of extreme. It requires some accurate kicking and a few bounces. Or just, you know, a game where you absolutely shit on someone. And uh, this was that for for the Crows. And it being the milestone game for Walker meant they were going to feed it to him even more. Despite how lopsided this one looked on paper, it's still, like, it's hard to beat a team by that much. It's not off and you just kick someone's ass up and down the field like that all night. Had Allen not gone back, this would have been a 200-point showing for the Crows. I mean, I'll, I'll credit Bailey Williams for having one of his more active games as a whole. Bailey J. Williams, that is. He's improved a lot from the start of the season. I mean, you remember how much I was on him after that North game for pretty much giving that game away and me wondering, what does he even do? He's done a heck of a lot since then. Yeah, he he's not. I don't think he's ever going to be a match winner for him, but he'll be competent. A goal, thirty-five hitouts, twenty disposals, fourteen contested possessions. He looked like a player that belonged at the AFL level in a game where not a lot of members of his team did. 
hey, Elliot Yo got through a second game on injured. He was playing back on Fogarty to start things out. You had said that he he's going to get hurt again, what, after the bye, I think it was? Yeah. Oh, yeah, the Eagles have their bye this coming week, which means a couple of things. It means we have more watchable footy and less guarantee, you know, fewer guaranteed blowouts. And then they're going to come back against the Swans and get bludgeoned at the SCG. It also means we have to spend a few minutes talking about them on our bi-week progress reports. I mean, I'll, I'll have decent stuff to say. Um, a little preview of that. Uh, only the top players seem to care enough to pressure. I've had this problem for them a lot this year. Why is it that the players that are lower down the list are not fighting for their careers? Anyone can pressure, but only the fearless can be great, right, Ethan? You you paraphrased the Gusto thing before. I don't know. I said something like that. I think it is a playing issue at this point because some players are doing it and some are not. I'm glad that the players up near the top, Allen, Kelly, Shuey, Yo, I hope Elliot Yo stays healthy and I hope that he's able to actually find success in the rest of his career. Tim Kelly might have made the worst decision ever in terms of moving from one club to another where it's not, like, for playing time, because he had playing time at Geelong. You know, Toby Bedford, for example, yeah, he went to a worse team, but he went for, you know, he went to get more playing time, and he's getting that. And he's on a team that fits his style better. But also, it wouldn't be an Eagles game without an injury, a soft tissue injury to be specific. Luke Foley did his hamstring. When are we getting an external review into the conditioning and into the medicos? This is not normal to have this many players go down with hamstrings, soft tissue problems. And at this point, it's not just the older players like Luke Shuey, who also got through this game uninjured. I mean, where else do you go here? I don't know. I Like I said, you watched bits and pieces here and there going back, and I barely even did that. I mean, you probably saw a compilation of Texas 10 goals. Yeah, that's about it. He was the top-ranking player for the round. I mean, not surprising when you fucking kick 10 goals. It wasn't just that, though. It was 10-2 off 21 disposals, 11 marks, and 603 meters gained. Yeah, you don't see him cracking 20 disposals all that much. I mean, he was the focus, and rightfully so. He's the fourth crow to score 10 goals in a game, joining Tony Modra, Scott Hodges, and Tom Lynch. Yeah, I, I was surprised to find that the Crows' Tom Lynch had kicked 10 in the game. If you had had me name, you know, players from the past decade of the Adelaide Football Club to have kicked 10, he would have been very low on that list. This Tom Lynch also played for who else? Uh, well, he was on North's list but got injured and is now there, is now a VFL coach. Hmm. I mean, I I know the other Tom Lynch. I know this is not that. Uh, Rory Laird, 34 disposals, 20 contested possessions, 13 clearances and 473 meters gained. Jordan Dawson, 32 disposals. Ben Keyes, a goal, 29 disposals, 10 score involvements. Isaac Rankin, 3-2 off, 20 disposals. Rory Sloan, 2 goals, 19 disposals, 13 score involvements. Team stats that kind of paint the picture. Crows nearly doubled them in inside 50s, 65-34. Little, they were 17.5% more efficient inside 50. The Eagles committed 16 more turnovers. The Crows had 44 more marks, and inside 50, marks were 18-3. to three. Yep, you shouldn't be surprised. The Eagles' best hope in defense was Oscar Allen. And before that, it was Rhett Bazo and Elliott Yo. Bazo could grow into a nice 
into a nice one-on-one defender. Elliot Theo's not that type. I feel bad for Bazo and for Brady Hoff for these defenders to be starting their careers this way. You know how much of a Brady Hoff advocate I am. Move the ball decently in this game as well. I want him to really be a leader of this young group. Other than Bailey J. Williams' stats, Elliot Theo had 30 disposals and gained 566 meters. Tim Kelly, a goal from 27. He gained 544. The Eagles go into the bye at 1-12. and And I think they'll finish 1-22. and You know, I've seen a lot of people's ladder forecasts and whatever and simulations that most of them have them at 2-21. and Who is their other win against? Is it the rematch with North? In Perth? I feel like it's gotta be, right? I don't know who else it could be. I don't, I don't see him winning that, do you? I mean, if North's midfield is healthy, probably not. And I think North's midfield is, you know, at least for now, tracking to be healthy for that, so... Yeah. 1-22. You probably know by now, unless you're a first-time listener, and if you are a first-time listener, welcome. We're on Twitter, at AmericansFooty. Benjamin really pulled the wait there last week, which I really appreciated. Hi, yeah, I'm also on Twitter individually at BenjaminHK01, but I mean, I was mostly tweeting from the Americans Footy account this past week, of course. We're also on YouTube at Americans Footy. I'm on Twitter at Castle Media. Brian Harambe is on Instagram exclusively at CatNameBrian. And he's calmed down for the moment. He's back in here, and he's currently occupying his normal spot on the windowsill behind the blinds. By the way, Sicily was suspended for three games, and people are not happy. Yeah, I don't know how that's three yet to go. He's also only three. I would say something about impact over intent. But the impact on to go is pretty fucking bad. Uh, McCluggage was knocked out, too. That's true. Um, I don't know. I'm I'm not going to try to make sense out of most of these. Michael Christian needs to resign. Match review officer... Firstly, that's that should not be one person's power. That's my biggest issue, honestly, is that one person is in charge of that. But at this point, you can tell the league is scared of a lawsuit. And it's that paranoia that's leading them to punish all these tackles. I'm surprised that we didn't have another dangerous tackle suspension looking into Sunday's games. But we're not done with Olive Garden Saturday yet. Or it wasn't Olive Garden Saturday. Well, I think the last game kind of was. It kind of fit that. Like, you knew it was going to be solid. It wasn't going to... It wasn't amazing. I mean, second half was better than what you'd expect from Olive Garden, I'd say. Fremantle 10-10-70, defeated by Richmond 12-13-85. Liam Baker gets a win in his 100th game back home in the West. Daniel Rioli gets a win in his 150th. Baker was pretty visible in this one. He was talked about a lot on the, a lot on the broadcast, rightfully so. Had, had a bit more of that roving role. But the real story of this game late was the monster fourth quarter from Shea Bolton. Finished the game with a goal, 33 disposals, and 925 meters gained. That goal was in the fourth quarter. He had 14 disposals in the fourth. There aren't too many guys that could go out and bag you five goals and also get you 14 disposals in the quarter. He's in pretty rare company there. But what what made this game so interesting to me after... I was kind of half asleep for the first half, but watched the second half very closely... Richmond went into halftime, up by 15, stretched that lead out to as much as 36 in the third, and then Frio woke up. Josh Tracy and Andrew Brayshaw each got goals. Toby Dan Curvis got one back, where he 
did a really nice job off a throw-in against Luke Jackson. And Curvis, you, you see just how much Richmond missed without him. And you can see how much Fremantle did miss in this game without Sean Darcy matching up against him, could you say? Yeah, I mean, Jackson was fine, don't get me wrong, but having Darcy in there, instead of having Jackson having to pull so much weight and kind of play multiple roles, would have been nice. Anyway, Fremantle after that responded again. It's You thought that Nankervis goal would kind of quiet things, like, all right, that was your little glimmer of hope, that's all, but no, they got a couple more Big goal by Nat Fife at a 72-degree angle on the run. Then Nathan Broad gave up a front-on-contact free kick to Michael Walters. Walters the sub again in this one. Another high-impact game as the sub. That let Frio get to the fourth down by 19, and with all the momentum, that goal by Fife was what really sparked it, I thought, emotionally. You know, having your now former captain, but club legend, guy who's, you know, a hero to any Frio fan. Not just scoring a goal, but a really difficult one. And then Walters got going, like I said, he was in that sub role. He came on mid-third quarter for Bailey Banfield, who had a pretty quiet night. I, I don't get not ha- having Walters in there for a full game. I guess maybe he's just one of those guys that's really good in short spurts. I think it was more that he was still working his way back from injury. He'd been in doubt over the weekend. They weren't sure about his fitness for a full game. So that's the deal with that, more than being a short-term impact player. Anyway, he also got the first goal of the fourth quarter, who um, he had position on Nathan Broad, kicked a kicked a dribbler. Then one of the only screw-ups from Shea Bolton, he had a poor kick to lead to a turnover, and after a nice little move by Josh Tracy, Fife set up Jai Amis. That cut it down to seven, and then in the final 17 minutes and change, the Dockers scored a single point, and Richmond just did a really nice job holding them off. There were stretches where they had a bunch of forward time. Fremantle put on good pressure, and while Richmond didn't score, it was enough to kind of shift the flow of play back to that end of the ground. Tigers kicked a bunch of behind. Never got to closer than that seven-point margin on the Amos goal. Well, uh, it looked like it had gotten closer because Ethan Hughes, my sleeper pick for Frio this year, was able to slip past Leah Baker Get a good shot on goal. Nathan Broad couldn't get to it. Did it hit the post? I thought it did. I thought it did, too. I thought it probably did not hit Broad's fingers, but I thought it hit the post. They said insufficient evidence, on-field call. They I, thought, I thought the on-field call was a goal at first, but I, I really do think they got this one right. I thought I saw a bit of a deviation in the flight. Yeah, I'm surprised the weren't able to determine that. Yeah, well, they they weren't able to use edge because players were going into the post as well. This is screaming, you know, a need for more accurate tech, a more sophisticated, like, Hawkeye system. Hawkeye being used in so many sports now. Tennis, soccer, cricket, baseball's got it. We're tracking pitches. That was why it stayed a nine-point game instead of going down to four, and... I mean, then Richmond were able to milk the clock the most of the way, and... The game was already over by the time Shea Bolton got the last goal, but it was just an exclamation point play because it was a big mark right on the goal line. And he had had such a good quarter, and I think the 15-point margin is probably a bit more accurate. I'm not going to get too worried about Frio off of this game alone. How they respond to this is going to be telling. You know, they had been in such good form, they were due for something of a clunker. Um, You know what probably didn't help? 
Rain! Yeah, water falling from the sky once again proved to be probably their biggest enemy. Yeah, should should mention talking about that uh that Sydney St Kilda game. It had rained for much of Thursday in New South Wales leading up to that, but there was some pouring rain for segments of this Richmond and Frio game a couple times in which it just dumped. The footy was slick. Frio were having a harder time handling things, but they were still looking to push the pace. And instead of backing off that, trying to take that sort of game away from them, Richmond said, we can do that too. And I liked that aggression and it worked. That was what impressed me the most. Dion Prestia was a real leader through the middle in that respect. One of his best games of the season, I'd say. And Trent Cotchin really solid and hit the lead up to his 300th game this coming week. Prestia had 27 disposals and seven clearances. Cotchin, 28, 15 contested possessions and seven clearances. Oh, who also had seven clearances? Um, how about Tim Torano as part of a two-goal, 35-disposal performance? He is, of course, the 151st best player in the AFL. I, I know you never see numbers over 50, but he should ask the league if he can wear number 151. Somebody should buy a Tim Torano jumper and... Beneath his number 14, put plus 137. Nah, how about some, like, number 14 on the field, number 151 in your rankings? Oh, just like, that's a Carlton Draft shirt right there. Yeah, it's like, I think my favorite I've ever seen was someone saying, number 11 on the field, number 11 in your hearts. You know, you probably have, like, 10, you know, close friends and family ahead of you, but number 11's a safe bet. I want to remember who that number 11 was, and I'm... It was probably just some high school athlete or something. I don't know, but it was funny. Yeah. Good return for Nick Vlostone. 26 disposals, 12 marks, and 9 intercepts. Jaden Short kicking 3 goals from 20 disposals. Yeah, Jaden Short kicking 3 goals. Always been a capable long kick, and and I like seeing him positioned a little bit more forward and using that for scoring when, when Richmond were having a bit of a hard time at times sticking some connections inside 50. Then Curvis with a goal from 49 hitouts and 14 disposals. Richmond were plus 22 in hitouts, plus 12 in stoppage clearances, and minus 11 in free kicks, 18 to 7. That was a point of contention for the Tiger Army throughout this game, and you would have heard a lot more about it had they lost. Up until a pretty late stage of the fourth quarter, I believe they only had three. I will say, though, because of that review, both sides had some issues with um, hiring my favorite was there was such a great shot of a Frio fan after they said on field call behind. Oh, just like the huge middle finger. Yes, it was really good. I like how they're unafraid to show that in Australia. I like when you have to blur it out. It's like, what could be hiding behind the American Idol logo? Or I can't tell what part of the body they pixelated. Who do you give the three votes to in this game, honestly? Because, I mean, Bolton had... The winning performance in the fourth, but wasn't consistent. I'd be tempted to say Dan Curvis. I can see that. Uh, the coaches' votes: Taranto and Bolton each got nine. Dan Curvis didn't get any. Uh-huh. I mean, I, I can see Taranto. I, I would. I'd say Taranto, Bolton, and Dan Curvis would be my three vote getters. But I couldn't give Bolton the top because it wasn't a consistent performance. Luke Jackson again having to kind of. Play multiple roles. Two behinds, 33 hitouts and 23 disposals. Caleb Saronga behind, 31 disposals, 17 contested possessions, 9 clearances, 631 meters gained. Andrew Brayshaw, 29 disposals, 480 meters. James Aish, 26 disposals before getting 
absolutely crushed in a Ryan Mansell hit. It was shoulder to head. It looked to be even worse because Ace's headband got knocked clear off. Ace will miss next week. Mansell will miss the next three. That was one that was sent straight to the tribunal, and and I can understand it based on the precedent from what other concussing hits have been given. Despite the loss for Frio, Matthew Johnson, huge bright spot, uh, behind 25 disposals, 7 clearances. Yeah, more active in the midfield, providing another piece there at stoppage, along with Sarong and Brayshaw. I think, well, Brayshaw's been a bit outside the stoppage a lot of times this year, and had he not been suspended for a couple games, I think you could have seen him contesting for a Rising Star nomination, but I don't think you can win the Ron Evans medal after you've been suspended. North Melbourne, 11 9 defeated by Greater Western Sydney, 15-13-103. I called this one, I guess, kind of midway. North were keeping pace early. I didn't think they'd be able to later on, and bingo. It was a five-point game at the half. It was a five-goal to two, third quarter, and that was really all she wrote. And the Giants dominated from stoppage as well. I mean, considering that North were missing Davies Uniac, Greenwood, and Simpkin, I can't blame them. No, I can't, and I'm glad that they put up as much a fight as they did despite that. I don't know if he necessarily merits another run as as head coach, but Brett Ratton has done a damn good job with these guys in the four weeks he's coached them. Two very tight games, admittedly one they kind of really pissed away, but he had been coaching them for less than a week at that point, so he can kind of give it a pass. And also, you know... They didn't ask for Liam Shields to come to the bench when he was cramping. Collingwood, they got beat early and then made it sort of competitive, not that the outcome was ever in doubt. Played Essendon really tough, and they get stuck in this game for a half with what they were missing. If they were at full strength, you could be pretty disappointed, but looking at what was absent, that's, you know, at the start of the year, like, remember, like, in their loss to Hawthorne, it became, it was kind of the start of this trend for North, where it was like, Man, if they don't have both of Davies, Uniac, and Simkin, it gets ugly. And they were missing both of them and Hugh Greenwood. And still, for a half, this was a game. It was the younger players doing the dirty work again. George Wardlaw, definitely part of that. The rising star nominee for this round kicked his first goal as well. North were always looking forward with their handballs. Their pace was really good. And you could tell near the end of the first half, when they decreased their tempo a bit, no goals scored in the final eight-plus minutes of clock time in the second quarter that they were going to be in trouble coming out of the half. Meanwhile, the positive signs for the Giants from the get-go, another solid game from Kieran Briggs matching up against Todd Goldstein, Tom Green and Steven Canelio obviously driving things from the middle, and a hat-trick from one Callum M. Brown. He's a forward. Ever since that game against Hawthorne last year where he was kicking off the ground in wet conditions, it was like, why would you put this guy anywhere else? Also, when he made his debut as the sub against Geelong before that and kicked two? Yeah, it's like, I understand sliding Harry Himmelberg back. He's a big body, even though he is a pretty gifted forward. I can, We've seen what he can do defensively. And, and, it, and it sounds like Kingsley is going to keep him in half back post by. I think you've got to just because, as as we've said, this team has a multitude of good forwards and very few good defenders, especially 
with their current injury situation. And Himmelberg has been linked to Richmond for a while in trade talks as well. So it could be a way for them to prepare for, for forward life without him. And even with Brett Daniels out, Toby Benford continues to provide a lot of spark there as well. Been doing much better these past couple weeks toward the middle of the ground, whereas I've been more focusing on his work as a flanker going into the 450. Defensively, they could be getting Sam Taylor back this week, which would be huge. Yeah, the one thing that was really going against GWS all game, especially in terms of one-on-one matchups, was that Jack Buckley simply could not match up with Nick Larkey. He kicked four on him pretty... Larkey kicked four pretty easily. Giants host Frio this week. I'm looking forward to that game. Giants have been pretty damn good at home when they've been competitive everywhere. Dockers coming off a loss. I think that's like the sneaky fun game of the round. But there was someone in the middle of the ground for North, though, making up for some of those key mids absences, and that was Taron Thomas playing back home in Tasmania. Kick three and made you remember on his return, oh wait, this is what he provides. It was what, the second game for him? I meant like on his return to his home state. I get what you mean, I just wanted to make sure. I remember him playing that Essendon game. Yeah, yeah, he had a goal on that one too. 79% ground time for both, so thrown into the mix right away and ready for it. I hope that he's able to stay clean off the oval as well, that he's been able to learn and that the club is continuing to support him in that respect. Anytime he hasn't been in the lineup, it hasn't been an indictment on his performance. Uh, actually, well, it depends on performance versus just effort. Because there were effort issues last year. The talent's there, though. Absolutely. By the way, Harry Rouston kicked his first career goal after the siren. Nice way to finish the day for GWS. Tom Green... 26 disposals, 499 meters gained. Didn't score himself, but eight score involvements. Callum Ward, a goal off 26 disposals. Stephen Canelio, he's cooled off some, but is still a, still having a damn good year. A behind, 25 disposals, eight score involvements, seven clearances. Toby Green, 3-2 off 24 disposals. I've mentioned throughout this season, we've been seeing him more as a half-award plague on the perimeter of the 50, attending some center bounces even. I like that look. As he's been a cleaner player this year, I think we've really been able to appreciate his game. Like, there's a very small selection of forwards that are going to be able to get you 24 touches and three goals. But having him and Jeremy Cameron at the same time, like, yeah, no wonder they made a grand final. Uh, Lockie Whitfield had a behind. He also had 24 disposals, gained 492 meters. Himmelberg, 22 disposals. Kieran Briggs, 20 hitouts, kind of pedestrian, but 16 disposals and 8 clearances as the Ruckman is pretty damn impressive. Giants also had 16 more inside 50s, by the way, 63 to 47 in that regard. Jack Zeebel led north with 30 disposals. He gained 547 meters. Liam Shields of behind from 29 and 7 clearances, one of his more prominent games and more positive games. Aaron Hall had 25 disposals, but was a liability. He had been playing pretty well for a couple weeks. Yeah, not in this one. Not strong in defense. Unreliable kick. You can see why he struggled to get a game earlier this season. Harry Sheasel with 24 disposals and 498 meters gained. Bailey Scott with 23. And Eddie Ford with a goal from 19 disposals and 9 intercepts. I saw him come back in, play that first game this season, and I remembered, oh yeah, I'd like this kid the limited time I'd seen him. Nine intercepts for a guy with his offensive talent is 
pretty darn good. When you look back and see these redrafts of these recent years, Ford is going to skyrocket. He was a late-round steal. These Sunday and Monday games were fun. Almost identical crowds for with the G, 83,500 for both. And I got some of my friends to watch both of these games as well. So the conversations that we had were really fun as well, helping them understand the game a bit more, ask them, you know, what are you enjoying out of this? My friend Cole really enjoyed how seamlessly Essendon were moving the ball throughout the, the King's Birthday Eve game, which is a really clunky title, but that's what it was. Carlton 6-16-52, defeated by Essendon 13-8-86. This did not feel like a game where Carlton had one more scoring shot than Essendon, though. I really want the league to try more, like, big blockbuster matchups as Sunday night. I mean, obviously, it's facilitated by Monday being the holiday. No, I know, but, like, on a regular week, there should be a Sunday night game, not just afternoon. I'm, I'm going to keep pushing for this. You've got community footy, you know, Sunday morning into the afternoon, but... Not yeah, that's why instead of, you know, the big game being at, like, 320 typically, you know, make it 720. I'd be down for that. I hope 7 would be as well. Yeah, finish the round with a, with a banger instead of, you know, like we said, usually that, that 440 Sunday game, you know, doesn't really keep the juices flowing more, you know, most of the time. Not every time. No, Adelaide and Brisbane was a great one out of nowhere. Adelaide and Collingwood before that. Essendon and North, but, you know, when you're making the schedule, it's like... No, you're, you're looking for a marquee game for that middle Sunday slot, and more than anything, though, you're prioritizing Friday night. You know, one of the things that I love about the AFL is that it's distinctly not the NFL. But if they wanted to start doing big Sunday night games like the NFL, go right ahead. Please do this. Anyway... Essendon were very quick through the middle of the ground, and Carlton's game plan fucking sucked. Not only were Essendon quick through the middle of the ground, their back six were incredibly clean with the ball. Saw this from the AFL Central page on Twitter, not Instagram. The starting back six for Essendon. Andrew McGrath, Brandon Zirk Thatcher. It's McGrath, by the way. Yeah, but we have a mostly Australian audience. Okay, it's still McGrath. Okay, McGrath, Zirk Thatcher, Jaden Laverty. Dyson Heppel, Jordan Ridley, and Mason Redmond, 104 of 109 effective disposals. 95.4% for the back six group. That's phenomenal, and Heppel has looked, re- has looked rejuvenated these past few weeks. He had one key error where he gifted Charlie Curno a set shot, but Curno missed it. And other than that, I don't remember any real moment where when they had the ball, the Essendon backs made the wrong move. The most insane thing about this game to me is that Carlton kicked 6-16, and that's probably not even, like, their fourth or fifth biggest problem. No, they kicked 3-10 in the first half, let, let a lot of opportunities go to waste. They were only down two at the half, but, and Essendon scored six, and Essendon scored the first six goals after the break. I thought a few weeks back when the Cats played Essendon, their game plan was tremendous. They really took them on physically had bodies on them. Because, look, you look at Essendon's roster, and physically, they don't have a lot of big, beefy dudes. Like, Peter Wright stands out in that regard. They really don't have it in the midfield. Yeah, well, welcome back, Peter. Five goals in his first game of the year. You've got to take Essendon on physically. You've got to body up to them. You've got to create turnovers man-on-man. And you've got to just attack a defensive group that... 
while they're great ball movers, they're not great at actually defending. And look at how Brandon Zirk Thatcher has been exposed repeatedly in marking contests by key forwards this year because he is their key defender at this point, and he's not their best interceptor. That's either Ridley or Laverty. So really, your approach coming into this game has got to be tackle him in the midfield. Carlson had 33 tackles for the entire game. They had six in the third quarter. When Essendon were getting all that time forward. Ed Kerno was the supposed tagger of Zach Merritt. And Merritt went forward to start the second half and was a huge difference maker. Involved in those, involved right away. Had that first goal after the break, off the center clearance. Involved in the third and fifth goals as well. Ed Kerno, zero tackles. I am going to do some graffiti tagging in honor of Ed Kerno. And just like him, I'm just not going to tag anything. I've kept asking, like, why is he in the lineup? And I, I know the depth for Carlton is not that good. And one of their biggest issues is that they're a lot of weeks just shuffling around unremarkable depth, deck chairs, unremarkable midfielders in particular. But get Matt Kennedy on ball more. Give Patty Dow a full fucking game. Ed Kerno's clearly not the answer if he can't lay a tackle as a tagger. How does he merit being in the lineup? I've asked this a bunch of times. It just... He merits it because Zach Merritt probably tattooed him with his name at this point. I don't know, but his team has so many problems. Harry McKay was held to one goal, and Charlie Kernow kicked two four. He kicked no goals for in the first half, and McKay had, of course, a bad miss because he's McKay. Remember when people thought he'd gotten over some of his problems last week? Well, he's the way he started the game a week ago made you think there was something there, and then towards the end of the game cooled off. But like, I don't get why he's not being played on the wing. Heck, have him tackle some dudes, because look at his fucking arms. They're huge. And Jack Martin was getting involved early on as a different target forward on a couple occasions. He ended up being subbed out. I think that was more of being managed. It's unfortunate that he had to make way for Patty Dow. I'm glad Dow got in. Dow had more tackles in a quarter than what Sam Walsh, Patrick Cripps, and Ed Kernow, the supposed tagger, had for the game. By the way, that was three tackles that Patty Dow had. That was enough. You mentioned Cripps. Is he playing hurt or is he just struggling? I don't know. I'm thinking that his chronic back stuff is popping up again and he's trying to play through it and it is not helping anyone. But since round seven, his numbers have dropped so dramatically. You look at his first seven games. This is from uh, Nitro XYZ on Reddit who gave us these averages as of late. Was above his career average. Was above 2022 averages in disposals, tackles, clearances, contested possessions. All of those have dropped off by at least 25%, most of them by over 40% since round seven. I think his back's probably bothering him again. It probably also doesn't help that the team's form is discouraging. And as a captain, he's got to be the one to put his best foot forward. And he shoulders even more of the blame when he's not the problem here. And I don't think Michael Voss is the biggest problem here either. It's further up than that. This is Voss's second year. Brad Lloyd and Nick Austin have been there for longer. You want to talk about their problems in, in the midfield, why their back six doesn't mesh. The frustration should be leveled toward the people who designed the lists that are not delivering and have not delivered under multiple coaching regimes. Like, you can probably fault Voss for some of the lineup decisions, but these are the guys who are responsible for what pieces he's able to work with in the first place. Pommy and Oz, part of the Blue Abroad group, Love the, love the work that they all do. Pommy does the, the watch-alongs. He was also on the, the fan cans post-game with, with Terry. 
thank you both for for continuing to provide content as difficult as it is right now for you to watch your club going through this. You know that Voss made a plan not to lose instead of really taking on the game. Again, look at how Geelong played Essendon. Geelong, which does not have the, you know, has some decent midfield bodies, but aren't, you know, from that physical standpoint, enormous. They still made Essendon look really really scrawny that day. You want to talk about Essendon and Scrawny, Nick Martin and Not Dead Ben Hobbs were everywhere. My friend Cole was loving both their performances. He was asking me a lot about these guys, and both of them have really matured in this, their second year for both of them. Martin's 22, Hobbs still 19. Hobbs has been more and more active as a pressure midfielder, and I'm loving that role for him. The way I like to evaluate guys, if I'm multitasking, and every couple minutes when I look up, the same guy has the ball. He's probably having a hell of a game. And that's kind of what Nick Martin did. Nick Martin behind from 30 disposals, 9 marks, and 7 clearances. Ben Hobbs with 24 disposals. Jai Caldwell had a goal from 25. He was playing hard the entire way. When it looked like the Blues were just resigned to their fate, done. Caldwell was still tackling. He got... This was just with a few minutes left that he dispossessed Adam Sod, then got Brody Kemp holding the ball and got the last goal. I just love seeing players playing to the end like that, especially in a sport where every single point matters. Dyson Heppel and Mason Redmond, both with 23 disposals and 8 marks. Nick Hine, 21 disposals as a support piece. Jordan Ridley, 20 and 8 marks. Zach Merrick kicked 1-1 from 18, but the impact he had second half goes far beyond those simple stats. and. Again, Peter Wright, five straight. That Essendon did so well without him in makes the spot they're in all the more impressive where they've already surpassed their win total from last year. They're eight and five. Yes, they have a weak schedule they're able to capitalize on a bunch, but they haven't just been beating the weaklings. Really, other than the game against Geelong, I can't look at too much of their season and say, wow, that was really shitty. Everyone has that one crappy game. Some teams have more than one, but Essendon have had one distinctly crap game. And, you know, against the Lions, they had a crap half, but overall, these guys are so far above what I had expected out of them. And then there's Carlton. Uh, Sam Walsh did have 35 disposals, but didn't tackle much. Adam Chera, not Wolf. Had 31 disposals and 10 score involvements. 10 score involvements on t- out of 22 scoring shots. Pretty good. Uh, Sam Doherty behind on 27 disposals. And the guy who is probably the best of their defense, Jacob Wiedering, 15 disposals and 10 intercepts. I also noticed Tom DeConing a lot in this game. I didn't think he played especially well. But at a time when fans have been calling out the team's effort, there's been no lack of effort from him. Execution needs work. Effort, don't change a thing, Tommy. And then there was the King's birthday game itself. Was it cleanly played? No. Was it high scoring? No, and Melbourne did a lot to make that happen. But this was a comprehensive D's win despite the close margin. Collingwood gave him a scare late, but Melbourne won this. Simon Goodwin won this with his plan. Melbourne 8-18-66, defeating Collingwood 9-8-62. The D's beating the Pies at the G for the first time in their last eight meetings at the venue. Simply put, Melbourne kept Collingwood from playing their game. Collingwood got very few long runs outside of a couple portions. There was 
part late in the third quarter where I thought it was going to open up, but that closed off pretty quickly. A whole lot of front half intercepts. Instead of mashing Collingwood with numbers at the ball, they let their best in the guts, guys. Jack Viney, Christian Petraka, Angus Brayshaw win the ball and then exploit Collingwood swarming by getting the ball to the outside and moving quickly from there. It was masterful. Outside of the first 10 minutes when they faced a 19 to 1 deficit, and I guess the last couple of minutes when things got a little scary, that 19 point lead all of a sudden was down to four. This was just a thorough, methodical game. And I love the thing on this one because this is the game for Melbourne, let's be real. Whereas Collingwood, you know, you've got the rivalry with Carlton, you've got Anzac Day, you've got this and that. Now, for Melbourne, this is the one. Also, I just love, like, the differences between these two clubs, even though they're both old Victorian clubs, play all their games at the G. In terms of the size of the fan base and just, like, the attitudes of the fans, it's a really strange combination, and that's one of the things that I love about this game. You're mentioning outside of those first 10 or so minutes of clock time that were dominated. You look at the graphic that Fox Foddy kept showing in the post-game coverage. It was since the 15-minute mark of time on in the first quarter. Outside of those first 15 minutes of play, Melbourne were plus 23 contested, plus 16 inside 50s, 13 more shots at goal, and 32 forward half intercepts. They stopped Collingwood from getting out. And had they kicked more accurately in front of goal, it would have reflected how well Simon Goodwin and company coached this game. Those late goals do help ensure that Collingwood still topped the ladder. Well, they already topped the ladder, but they have the best percentage of anybody right now. Their percentage is more than 18 points clear of the other 11-2 team, Port Adelaide. Though I'm tipping Collingwood to lose that number one spot for this upcoming week because I think Port Adelaide beats Geelong on Thursday. And it is bye week now for the Pies, but not a bad time to have it, all things considered. A lot of guys banged up. I know they had illness running through the club this past week as well, which definitely didn't help. But I still like the idea of a healthy Collingwood team against a Melbourne team without Clayton Oliver. And still, the midfield of Melbourne had was better. Jack Viney best on ground, winning the Neil Danaher Trophy with a phenomenal performance. A goal kicking 1-1 from 32 disposals, 19 contested possessions, 11 tackles, 9 clearances, and gaining 481 meters. This isn't, you know, sliding Collingwood as a club. It's just we haven't seen them be beaten this way. It was very different with how, with how the Lions beat them. The Lions decided to meet them at contests. And I think other teams tried to do that a lot, and they got burned for it because they didn't have enough pieces that could match up with Collingwood in contests, but they still went for it. I think with Oliver in there, Melbourne could have rushed the contest a bit more. I'm, I'm just very impressed, even though, again, it wasn't the prettiest game, just that Melbourne finally got over the hump against him. And I think it was right in a lot of ways that, you know, it had to come down to the final moments. I feel like if they had kicked more straight, you know, if instead of 8-18, it's like, I don't know, 13-13 or something. I feel like that wouldn't have been right. I feel like they had to tough this one out at the end. I feel like they or had. Or it would have had to be like a historic ass-kicking. I think beating Collingwood in a game like this, even though you know it wasn't really you know like that sort of back-and-forth, late-lead-change one-goal game, to beat them in a close one where you get the big reaction at the final siren and stuff, you know, that's how you end a streak against a rival. Melbourne had a lot of challenging shots that they missed in the first half, they were missing easier ones in the second half. Meanwhile, 
Collingwood got sparked right away from Pat Lipinski upon return. He slid into the lineup very easily because Jordan Degoe was out suspended. And, you know, Degoe and Tom Mitchell, that pairing has, has been a focus as people have watched Collingwood this year. Mitchell and Lipinski paired together really well also. Lipinski feeding off of some of Mitchell's efforts in contests and getting a couple goals through that. The Pies did lead this game by 9 at quarter time and by 8 at halftime. Bailey Fritch had a really quality game. I believe he ended up with, what, three goals, which in a 66-62 game, that's a lot. It's not a bag. A bag has to be, like, minimum of five-ish, I think. That that was the Mason Cox opinion, and I, I trust him. Uh, yeah, Fritch was 3-3 on the night. Kind of involved himself in different areas, different angles. I said before, he's not the most exciting player to watch, but he gets shit done, and he got shit done. You were wondering if some of Fritch's misses were going to come back and haunt Melbourne, or if Kate Chandler's miss after the center clearance to start the fourth quarter was going to really hurt, be a memorable one. Honestly, if you're talking about you know missed kicks in this game, I'm looking back to Reef McGinnis, completely whiffing on one late in the third quarter. Collingwood got a center clearance after Brody Grundy kicked a goal. There was a huge reaction all over the G for that. Melbourne handballs weren't exactly clean, but McGinnis barely got boot to ball at all. No score. In a one-kick game, stuff like that gets magnified. McGinnis was a late into this one because Jack Ginnivan was managed. And we're both very big Reef McGinnis advocates, you, Ethan, in particular. Yeah, unfortunately, though, he was not very noticeable in this game. You know, one of the other reasons this game ended up being close, aside from, you know, Collingwood getting a couple of late goals, was an interesting call. Bo McCreary grabbed and they said he, you know, kicked this ball while it wasn't fully across the goal line. It sure looked like it was over and that they didn't even go to a score review seemed especially strange. I thought it did go to review. There was a little bit of a delay because of that. You know, we see sometimes where there's where there are reviews that are automatically triggered without the the goal umpire and a field umpire conversing insufficient evidence to be able to overturn. There were a couple different frames that suggested a point of impact was made. You know, because of how this game finished, it it didn't feel like a game where Melbourne held the lead all the way from the middle of the third quarter. It was Fritch's third and final goal on a snap that gave Melbourne a 40-35 lead with under 12 minutes to go in the third quarter. Grew out the lead to as large as 19, but weren't ever able to close it out with accurate kicking. And that's how Collingwood were able to get back in it. Even with a couple of misses, uh, Will Hoskin Elliott had one that felt even bigger just with the fact that it was 4.07 left and that kept it at 18 points. He had also gotten a huge hit early in the game from Lockie Hunter that got my friends who were watching the game texting me and saying, just like, wow, that was awesome. A great clean hit. So, you know, the old rule, the one that BT loves to reference is, you know, best comeback you can pull off is at a rate of like a goal per minute. And Yeah, that, that's an old Lee Matthews thing. Yeah. It sure felt like this one was done with about three or four minutes left. And then Brody Majacek scored with 58 seconds left. Then Bobby Hill set up Nick Dacos. And all of a sudden with 26 seconds left, it was a four point game. But the D's finally were able to kind of just clear it deep enough into the Collingwood zone that there just wasn't enough time left. And it ends up being a great win for Melbourne. 
By the way, Mason Cox and Christian Petrarca were kind of chirping at each other after the game had ended. Just makes me sad that they're not going to face off again during the home and away season. Uh, Mason said that they talked things over later and everything was cool. But it was interesting to see a little chirping going on after a game ends. Because you're so used to being, you know, the moment the game ends, after you've been beating the hell out of each other for between two and a half and three hours, everyone, you know, you know shakes hands, talks, talks to people, you know, hey, how's the family doing? How are your kids? Whatever. And now there was, there was some heat to this. Lockie Hunter, 28 disposals, 8 marks, 610 meters. His role on the wing, once again, pretty valuable, though he's also made an impact pretty much ever on the ground. Christian Petraka, two behinds, 28 disposals, 15 contested possessions. Maybe my favorite player on the night, Christian Salem, 24 disposals, 10 marks and 9 intercepts. Love the work from Salem and Judd McVie, engineering play from the back. The most visible Salem's been this year. Obviously missed early action with the recurrence of his thyroid condition. You can see why he was so valuable to that premiership team in hindsight with a performance he put on tonight and I'm glad he wasn't alone. Johnny McVie really inserting himself into the side as well, and Trent Rivers joining him as a strong interceptor. Rivers with 23 disposals and 9 intercepts. Uh, on the team stats, Collingwood below 50% efficiency on inside 50 seems very unlike them, but yeah, 38.8. While the Ds were at a solid, not amazing, but certainly passable 47.5, D's also won hitouts by 21, which, I mean, Collingwood's going to be losing hitouts most weeks, so that that part's not surprising, really. No, with, with the mix of Gone and Grundy there and Gone being a good interceptor as well, how we contain some of Collingwood's better passages as well. I have yet to go back and watch Simon Goodwood being on AFL 360 from Monday night after the game, but I'd love to hear more of his insight into the game plan. I want to go back and listen to more of his presser as well. Notable stat lines for the Pies. Tom Mitchell with 30 disposals and 10 tackles. Jack Crisp, 1-1 from 28, 11 tackles and 481 meters. Taylor Adams, 27 disposals and 8 tackles. Nick Dacos, that last goal and 27 disposals. It, it was a bit of a quieter game for him and... No coaches' votes. He had a turnover that led to a fridge behind that opened the margin up to four kicks. Probably one that Fridge would like to have back would have put the lead out to 24 instead of 19, but nonetheless, it was you know, that uncharacteristic poor kick from Nick Dacos where, like, you can remember specific negative plays he's had because he's had so few of them. He's human. Scott Pendlebury, 26 disposals. Braden Maynard, 25, 8 marks, 569 meters gained, and just being that agitator we expected to be. And John Noble, 20 disposals. I was expecting him to lift a bit more in the later stages, but he didn't quite do that. I'm about to fall asleep, so let's go through nominees for Mark and Goal of the Week. Oh yeah, we're recording this like right after I drove Ethan back from Oakland Airport. Yeah, I s slept on my first flight. I did not sleep on the second. Uh, so Mark of the Week, your winner for round 12 was Jamari Ugalhagen over Zach Guthrie. I like Jacob Kashitsky the most, I believe it was. I like Eugle Hagen because with, because the players were kind of going the opposite way and facing each other. That made it a bit more unique. Anyway, your three nominees for this round are Cody Waitman kind of pushing off of Kane Farrell's body with his knee. Yeah, Tyler Brockman over Jack Payne along the wing, one of the more traditional ones. 
And then you had Cam Zerhar cutting in front of Harry Himmelberg. I feel pretty strongly about these. Benjamin, how do you? I like weight mids because it just looked cool. Almost had like a Luigi Super Mario 64 DS style or Super Mario Bros. 2 style. Also like flutter kick action there. I think Brock I, th- I thought it was more like, you know, Yoshi flying and kind of... The, the flutter jump, yeah. It's a yeah. similar it's a similar kind of almost like swimming with your legs thing. But I think Brockman's was the most impressive mark, especially to take it over Jack Payne. So I narrowly give my vote to Brockman over, over Waitman. It's a little less narrow for me. I'll go Brockman, then Waitman, then Zerhar. So same order. Round 12's gold week winner was Luke Peddler. Smothering a Matt Rowell kick in the forward 50 before rolling through from 31 meters out through an unguarded goal square. We went back and forth between that and Kazi Pickett. I was fine with either of those winning. I'm not going to complain here. Your nominees for this round, you had Jason Horn Francis at the end of that great team passage that we talked about in the Friday Nighter. Following the ball after Liam Jones slapped it away, wheeling around, straightening up and kicking for 24 out. Then more impressive individual efforts from Saturday's action. Sam Butler receiving a handball from Jacob Kaczynski and rolling home from a 60-degree angle, 33 meters out. And then Nat Fife crumbing deep in the pocket off a 450 throw-in and kicking across his body from 19 meters at 72 degrees. That's an incredibly harsh angle. Because I feel strongly about the Horn Francis goal being a result of a team play, I'm giving my vote to Fife, but Ethan, what do you say? I'm going Horn Francis because of how significant it was in the moment of the game. I mean, Fife's was big in the moment of the game, too, but that really just cut the margin down to, like, four goals, whereas Horn Francis, it was a big late-game moment. I don't mind that at all. I just, you know, we've been able to see that we sometimes have different criteria when it comes to our goal picks, especially. I didn't think any of these three were that great, but I thought they were all solid, and I Probably won't be bothered. Whichever one of them ends up winning. Round 12's main character. You, Ethan, really were the driver behind this one. It was the uh, No Bounce team. That had some changes this week. Yeah, I believe it was, what, Nathan Murphy had his first couple career bounces? Yeah, and Will Ashcroft did as well. He, uh, he did not last long. I think this was the first round where AFL Central put first years on there. You know, it was you know, the best team you could make out of players who had never bounced the ball. The week prior, three players had gotten off the list. You know, this hypothetical team has a lot of ruckman. As we mentioned earlier, the winner for this round for main character is pretty damn obvious. It's got to be Taylor Walker for, you know, the Carlton fans screaming at their team or the Frio fan with the middle finger. I'm sorry. Ten goals. In your 250th, no less. Yeah, ten goals takes cake. All right. Yeah, that's a... That's going to do it. We're both pretty tired. Been long days for both of us. And you might even hear Ethan snoring by the time I go through this uh, this little lead out here. So uh, find us on Twitter at American Spuddy. That's also where we are on YouTube. Ryan's on Instagram at Cat Named Ryan. He's at Castle Media. I'm at BenjaminHK01. And uh, we'll be back soon with two more episodes, our round 14 preview and our progress reports for the six teams who will be on buys. Yes, expect a preview before the progress reports this time around.